welcome to the Legacy Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Tommy Miller. For more information about Legacy Church, please visit us online at www.legacychurchclm.org. When you get to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, say amen. Thank you. Verse 11 says, He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and cunning craftiness, of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, we would grow up into all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effect of working by which every part does its share, causing the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for... uh, for this opportunity. Father, I'm humbled that you would trust me to share your revelatory word, and I ask that you inspire me and lead me by your Holy Spirit to give truth and revelation that transforms and not academics that puffs up. Lord, I ask this morning that you do what you can do. Lord, convict, exhort, rebuke, heal, comfort. Father, this is an open heaven here in this place. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Amen. So we're going to answer the question, why do I come to church? But let me give you some cultural relevance why we need to talk about this in the first place. You are in a county called Tuscarawas that currently has 226, count them, 226 pulpits between the north end and the south end of Tuscarawas County. Now, why is that important for us to understand? Because that is not biblical. I'm not saying it's not okay. We got to deal with it now. But what I am saying is 2,000 years ago, when church planters planted churches, they planted one per city. If you were a believer in the city of New Philadelphia, you belonged to the church in New Philadelphia. You sat under the apostles' doctrines and teachings of the New Philadelphia church. And if you didn't like the color of the carpet, you couldn't skip across the corner to the, the Joe Schmo denominational church. Why is this important? Because we've become a consumer driven culture where we judge a church's success on its ability to appease us rather than transform us. You can clap, it's okay. But imagine this, Paul encouraged people to never forsake the assembling together. And for us to understand what he meant by that, we have to understand the context that it was spoken in. What he was saying is if you are a believer in New Philadelphia, you are responsible to be part of the body of believers in New Philadelphia. There was apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists that were there to equip saints for the work of ministry to bring us all to a level of maturity. And now what happens, we sit in seats and the moment somebody preaches something that our granddaddy didn't preach, we say, that's it, I'm out. I'm going somewhere with preaching that I'm used to. And how many of you know that preaching that you're used to doesn't transform you? We want to hear something comfortable. We want to hear something edifying. We want to hear something natural. And the moment we start talking about healing and raising the dead and casting out demons, we're like, no, I don't believe in that. What gives you the right to rewrite my Bible? 
I didn't have a Bible in my hand, but you knew what I meant. It's not my thumb. So listen, let's talk about this, all right? So what happens when you belong to the church at New Philadelphia? Like I said, we have to deal with denominations now. Until we we see reformation in that arena, we have to deal with denominations now. But the fact is, we need to get plugged into a church and stay committed. And when the apostolic, the prophetic, the pastoral, the evangelistic, the teaching voice brings a word that challenges you, your responsibility isn't to jump up and leave, it's to submit and be transformed. If it challenges your thinking, if it forces you outside of your God box, then it's probably a message that you needed to hear. The word equipping the saints for the work of ministry had two other definitions in the Greek language. One is perfecting. Say perfecting. If you want to know why you come to church, you come here to be perfected. You come here to be perfected. That means that the word of God, the word of truth will invade areas of your life that are outside the nature of Christ and it will force them to be reconciled because the Bible says everybody that he foreknew, he also predestined, meaning he sought it fit before time began to be conformed into the image of his beloved son. Meaning if we're coming to church to have our ears tickled, to be made to feel good, to come into a place of fellowship so we can have all our needs met, and it's any other reason other than to be transformed into the very image of the Son of God, we've missed it. Now, will there be authentic community? Absolutely. Jesus had 12 disciples that he had authentic community with. But it comes from a place of identity and revelation rather than a place of neediness. People come into the church all the time. They're like, do you have a small group? I'm like, no, start one. Like, I can't. Like, why not? Because I can't make friends. Well, sounds like you need to be more like Jesus. We've become so consumer-driven that we want the church to form a group of friends for us and then add you to it. Why not be just less mean? (laughs) I'm I'm okay. I'm okay. God gave apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors, and evangelists for the adjusting of the saints for the work of ministry. That's another one of those definitions of the Greek word. So what happens when we get saved? Our spirit is immediately quickened to life and perfected. And then through preaching, teaching, and renewing our mind, we come into this place where we're able to reconcile our soul and our flesh with our perfected spirit. Do you want to see what that looks like real quick? It helps me to see things visually. Does it help you? All right. Give me three volunteers. Jimmy, Jeremiah. Who else? Who else is brave? You don't even know what you're volunteering for. Tim, come on up. All right. Jeremiah, stand here. Jimmy, you'd be right in the middle. Tim, you'll stand right here. Now, for us to understand Christianity, we have to understand the composition of a human, God's creation. Every human being is a living spirit with a soul that lives inside a body. For us to understand what that means, we can get a lot of the confusion out of the way about perfected and perfection. You know, God says you're perfect, but then he tells you to go on to perfection. So how do we reconcile those ideas? Here's how. You are a living spirit. Jeremiah is our living spirit. Everybody say hi. 
Jimmy is our soul. The, the, the Bible defines your soul as the very seat of your affections, your aversions, and your intentions. It's basically the things that you think, the emotions that you feel, and the things that you do. Get me? Spirit, soul, and then Tim is your body. All right? Now, here's what happens. All right. When... Lucky you. So here's what happens. We all know Genesis. There was two things that, that were preached to Adam and Eve from two different mouths. Now, we've covered this in the academy probably every week for like 12 weeks. So if you're an academy student, just sit back. But it's important that you and I understand that what happened in Genesis was corrected in Matthew. And that we now can walk into the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. And this is how. So... God said, in the day that you, Adam, eat of that tree, you will surely die. Satan said, you won't surely die, but your eyes will be open. So let me show you what happened. In the beginning, go ahead and just go like this. In the beginning, we had a body that was a slave to the spirit. Meaning the body wasn't naturally made as something with poor intentions. But when they ate of the fruit, something happened. God said, you'll surely die. God made man as a spirit, and he wasn't lying. So when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you became spiritually dead. Go ahead and give us a... He's dead. Satan said, your eyes will be open. So this dude wakes up. Right now, instead of being a spiritual being, you are a carnal being. And what happens before salvation is these two guys spend a ton of time together. That's your body and your soul. What happens is your body processes, your soul responds and creates a message for you to believe. Your body will forever be, whether saved or unsaved, a slave to your soul. Your soul is the conscious and subconscious message that you believe. All right, so what happens? You go through life and you're kicked around. You're abused, you're neglected. You failed, you've succeeded. You, you gain this past that's based on your works, your experiences, and your culture, and it programs something into this soul that determines what you believe, think, and do. If you go to Africa, people don't respond to poverty the same way we do. We're terrified of it. They live in it. So it's a message that isn't truth, it's relative. If this would be a woman, let me give you a perfect example. What's the youngest set of ears I have in there? There's one. Okay, we'll be uh, G-rated. <coughs> okay. If, th- if Tim's a woman, a body is always a slave to a soul. So if a young lady grows up with bad experiences with masculine figures, fathers, boyfriends, then she will have an internal recording of man bad. And then she finally meets somebody that she loves, somebody that she wants to give herself to for the rest of her life, but her subconscious will now cause her body to still be a slave to the message that she believes. And rather than responding to her husband with love and submission, she responds to him in fight or flight because that's the response that her soul's been taught. And it's not something that she can even control. Following me? So this is how serious this is. So what happens when we get saved? In John chapter 3, Jesus has a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is at the top, of the top rung of the religious ladder. He lacks nothing as far as religion, tradition, and wealth are concerned. 
Yet he sees the life of Jesus and his disciples and he says, teach, I want what you got. How do I get it? He says, you have to be born again to see the kingdom. He says, you have to be born of water and of the spirit to enter the kingdom. So what happens? This is going to be super practical. Good job. John chapter 3, put faith in Christ. Boom, he's born again, right? This thing that was dead once is now born again. So now we have spiritual perfection present in the human body from day one of your faith. You following me? But now we have to learn how to reconcile spiritual perfection with a carnal history. And it's called mortification. The best thing for you to believe as a believer, and my wife, she blew her top at the academy about six weeks ago because she got a revelation that changed her forever. Because when you look up here at this picture and you realize that that spiritual man was made perfect in the image of God, in the true nature, righteousness, and holiness of God, and this guy is dead... Because he is co-crucified with Jesus, you realize truly, truly, not, not just as a, a matter of fact or not just as a concept, all old things have passed away. And behold, all things become new. That means your anxiety, your depression, your addiction, your abuse, your neglect didn't follow you into your salvation. And it does not have to have one ounce of pull on your responses in your life. That's truth. So what happens? This is what's amazing, though, because uh, in the epistles, they ask us to participate in the mortification of our flesh. Not only do they ask us to participate in the mortification of our flesh, Jesus himself demonstrates the mortification of his own. How many of you ever read, I think it's Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus is, the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus like a dove? And everybody says, you got to get filled with the Holy Spirit because Jesus did no mighty miracles until he was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's true, but it's incomplete because there was an awful lot that happened between Jesus being empowered in the Spirit in Galilee and filled with the Spirit in the Jordan, and it was called the wilderness. Following me? Okay, so check this out. I'm going to read this, I think. You guys, knees okay? Okay, so this is how this works. Everybody say filled. Everybody say led. Everybody say empowered. Okay, now if I said something as shocking as this, being filled with the Spirit is not enough. Would you be okay with that? Joe would be okay with that. Let's talk about that. (coughs) All right, so the first thing we see In Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan, it says the Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove in bodily form. So Jesus at that moment became inspired by, washed in, baptized in, filled with the Holy Spirit. The very next thing it says of him in Matthew chapter 4 is this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What a fantastic first date as a Spirit-filled believer. You get saved, and then you get to meet Satan. Woohoo! Fantastic, right? But what we don't understand is that the Spirit will always lead you to crucify the flesh. 
The Bible says that by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the flesh. So when the Spirit is leading you, it will consistently deny your carnal lusts and desires so that you become who God called you to be and not who history tells you you are. So what happens? Now we have Jesus set up just like this. He's got the Holy Spirit, but he's, it says he became as sinful flesh. Right? <clears throat> and Jesus had a soul. So this is what happens. He gives us this example of how you and I are to mortify our own flesh so that we can come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now let me show you what this looks like. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Imagine that. I get hungry after like four hours. I'm not kidding you. I wake up and I'm like, I'm fasting today, and it's like 10 o'clock. I'm like... And I mean 10 a.m. It's bad. And when the tempter came, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and he said, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So do you understand what just transpired? A carnal desire came face to face with Jesus from the tempter. And rather than succumbing to his flesh... He responded in the spirit by the word of God. And this is what happens. His flesh says, hey, it's been 40 days. That looks pretty good, right? And then the spirit's like, hey, you don't have to eat that. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then something in your soul says, amen. Everybody say amen. That means I agree. Nope. He's got to stay over there for a little while. <clears throat> and then the next thing that Jesus is tempted with is suicide. Suicide is a spirit. It's not a human thought. It's not something that you originated in your mind. If it's been at your door lately, it comes to your door for you to overcome, not to succumb to. You hear me? Your life has never been your own, and therefore it's not yours to take. It's not your responsibility to keep and guide yourself. It's your responsibility to rest in the finished work of God for your life. I would venture to say that everybody has been, is being, or will be tempted by the thought to end your own life. It's because it's not your thought. And Satan's intention for you would be to abort you right now, right here. It's about to get really good, guys. This is just the intro, okay? It's about to get really good. <clears throat> so the next thing is, he says, hey, God said he'd protect you. Jump off the building. And he says, the, the, the word says, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So he has a carnal thought and he has a spiritual response. When his soul, his thoughts agree with the spiritual response, guess what? His soul's coming into partnership with his perfected spirit. Now, this is where it gets good. How many of you have ever fasted before? This is what fasting does. Fasting is the avenue or the discipline that, that God gave us to do away with the old wineskin and the old garment. But do you know that if you are depriving yourself of food, but you are continuing to pick up your right to stay a victim and to retaliate and to be offended, then your fast isn't doing you much good. Your carnality wants to outburst. Your carnality wants to defend yourself. Your carnality wants to um, 
Slander back when you're slandered. But do you know that every time you deprive yourself of the, the carnal right to succumb to your carnal desire, you become more spiritual? That's what the mortification of the flesh looks like. Every time you get up to come to church at 7.30 a.m., even though your flesh would rather sleep. How many of you missed the 7 o'clock service this morning? All of you. It was way better than this one. We don't have one. Don't show up next week. (laughs) We don't have one. But listen. God's intention is for you to be a spiritual person. His intention is for you to be the manifestation of the Christ. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the life that Jesus lived was perfect theology. All who came to him were healed. His integrity was never brought into a position where it was tried. Sin around him never produced sin in him. Slander against him never produced slander coming from him. He continually displayed and reflected the nature of a holy God. And it is not our responsibility to come to church to get our wounds licked. It is our responsibility to come to church to be made like him. And as long as the western consumer driven church tries to reach a people that want somewhere to come so they can complain. Then we will never grow up into the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ that was hanging on a cross and said father forgive them. They know not what they do. That's a better gospel, right? That's a, that's a liberating gospel where nobody but Holy Spirit has the reins over your life. You guys can have a seat. Wait, don't have a seat yet. I got to show you the coolest part. <clears throat> so God's intention for your flesh. You know, in, in the church, we use the word like flesh is a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a very good thing that was simply out of order. Your flesh, when it's only been in the fallen realm only has carnal responses, but your flesh was actually made to be satisfied by the spirit. So it says by the spirit, he would give life. Come here to your mortal body. This is a mortal body. See now how all these three guys are here unified. This is holiness. This is definitive holiness. This is where the nature of God lives on the inside of a human with a soul that says amen and a body that reflects its perfection. That means it's not just a concept anymore. It's a reality. So Jesus, when people wanted to see the Father, what was his response? You don't have to look any further. If you've seen me, you've seen him. And his intention to bring you into the local church is for you to say, you don't have to see Jesus. Because if you've seen me, you've seen him. Now you can have a seat. Thanks, gentlemen. Give him a hand. All right, we're going to continue in Ephesians chapter 4. Would you believe that I'm going back and forth between three messages right now? All right. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, the edifying of the body of Christ. So the reason we come here is to be transformed, to stir one another to love and good works. It says, until we all come to the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, and to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we can't confuse. Listen, this is what the church is famous for. I've said it a million times. The church is famous for confusing with the means with the end. 
You guys know what I'm talking about, right? How many of you work out? Now, how many of you compete? Kylie competes. Okay, so check this out. <coughs> there are people that work out, and then there are people that compete. And the people that compete work out with an intention, right? They don't just go through the motions. They don't just go three sets of 10 and then they go home, right? They do whatever it takes to make sure that the intention is brought to fruition. So if we as a church don't have an end in mind, we can't put a vision in place. If we as believers don't even know why we walk through those doors on Sunday morning, we can't set ourselves to receive why we're here. Listen, you can sit under good apostolic, prophetic, and and evangelistic, evangelical teaching and never be transformed if you don't know what you're supposed to do with it. If you don't know, you're not just supposed to be a hearer of the word, but a doer as well. So the intention, like I said, is not to be comfortable, but to be confronted. To be confronted with the God that you paid for, excuse me, the, God, the you that God paid for, and the solution to reconciling the difference. You with me? Now, if that's not your intention, there are plenty of other churches in, in Tuscarawas County that that's not their intention either. And they would love to have you. We would love to have you. And if that's not your intention, hang around. It'll become your intention, I promise. <clears throat> the reason we come to church, the reason we come to Bible study, the reason we corporately worship is all so we can press into a transformational relationship with the person of Jesus Christ and our Father in heaven, and thus being conformed into the image of his beloved son. Now it says that, that we are being brought to a perfect man. In the Greek, that was better interpreted a finished man. This was the same word that Jesus used on the cross when he said it is teleo, teleo, teleo. Perfectly perfect, completely complete, lacking nothing. The church that Jesus paid for is blameless, spotless, holy, and has no blemish, and it's beautiful. And it's coming to the local body that teaches us how to walk in it. Now, perfection does not require striving. It requires resting. So the purpose of the ministries in your life, the purpose for the body around you, the reason you come to church, Bible study, small group, and all of these things is essentially and simply put, the means that gets us to the end. The end is Christ-likeness. It's so Jesus can get what he paid for because he is worthy to receive the product of his wages, and that is you with him in you. (coughs) Sorry for the cough, guys. Now, the, the next line reads, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is the true measurement of Christianity. The word stature actually meant maturity. So the statement is a mouthful until we understand that we're supposed to come to the maturity. Of the nature of Christ. Does that make sense? That means that people will never have to question what Jesus looks like after they've experienced you. That means that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When it comes to the measure of the maturity of his fullness, we can and we should expect to be able to say the same thing. That means that you can put the thoughts from your head in his head 
and they wouldn't seem foolish. That means you can take the words from your mouth and put them in his mouth and they wouldn't sound foolish. That means you can take the fear from your life and put it in his life and it would look foolish. That means the words in your mouth, excuse me, the understanding in your heart and the understanding in his would have no need for reconciliation. Jesus did not die because you were a sinner. Jesus died because you are a saint with a compromised identity. And that is a much better gospel. So how do we come to fruition? I kind of explained that through the, through the narrative. But do you understand that becoming intentional and participating and becoming who God created you to be is something that you and I need to, to take very seriously? Because here's what he does. The Bible says, how can two walk together unless they agree? Right? That's the prophetic utterance of the New Testament covenant. Because God immediately established a new identity for you. The moment you put faith in Christ, you became positionally holy, righteous, blameless, spotless. Perfect. You became the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now it is your responsibility to say amen. To come into agreement with what the Spirit says. Because by coming into agreement, you get to walk together. By walking together, you get to be conformed. Does that make sense? You ever heard the, the road to salvation? If you confess the Lord Jesus Christ with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you understand that is a three-dimensional process? You need a physical, a soulish, and a spiritual agreement in order to receive from heaven? You can think about that one later. It's good. That means your mind, your body, and your spirit have to come into agreement with truth. Here's the secret, and I'm going to make it this simple. There is a vast difference between truth and facts. Truth and facts need to be established, divided, and defined. Because the world will consistently give you facts. Were you abused? Sure. Were you neglected? Absolutely. Were you beaten? Were you a drug addict? Were you a dealer? Were you an alcoholic? Were you raped, molested? Sure. It's a fact. But the truth triumphs over facts. 100% of the time, the truth has a name. His name is Jesus. And the fact is, he just doesn't have an opinion. It's good, man. It's not just his opinion. Understand that he lived on this planet for 33 and a half years to win your battle. And then when he won your battle, he died on a cross. And then he won your battle against death. He won your battle against hell. Then he won your battle against the grave. And then he took you into a place called the Holy of Holies, and he sprinkled it with his own blood. Then the book of Hebrews says, and now we have this. He entered in behind the veil. And we have this hope as an anchor for our soul. Do you understand what that means? That means when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, He was overcoming your emotion for you. 
He was in the most stressed place in his possible, in his human life. And he was wrestling with his humanity. He was so stressed out. He was sweating blood. And then he overcame emotion. Do you know how he overcame emotion? He said, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. Understand he wasn't just giving you the example of how to overcome emotion. He was vicariously entering a victory that you could walk in. And then he got betrayed by one of his best friends. His name is Judas. And he took the betrayal and overcame it for you. Do you understand the entire life that he lived was a vicarious experience so that you would never have to be a victim of anything, including death? Christ's resurrection became the end of death as the end. Do you understand what it means to follow Jesus? I mean it. There is a clear-cut path of victory that Jesus is calling you to. Please, please, please hear me. He overcame emotions. He overcame betrayal. He overcame abuse. He overcame pain. He overcame death. He overcame suffering. He overcame hell. He overcame the grave. And then he sat in the side of heaven as a human and said, no, you come on. That's the gospel. But he says, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. Pick up your cross. I know where we're going. Because if you lose your life for my sake, we'll find it. So that human nature, that carnality, those experiences, you do not have the right to hold on to those anymore when a forerunner has entered in behind the veil and is calling you to heavenly places. Is that good news? I think that's good news. Okay, we're almost done. Turn to John chapter 11 real quick. I just want to show you an example. Man, that's 25 verses. I don't know if I want to show you that example. It's not what I want to show you. I'll mention it. John 11, don't have to go there. It says, now a certain man was sick. That's a fact, right? Lazarus of Bethany, a town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, her, the sisters sent him, saying, Lord, behold, he, he, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, the sickness is not unto death. There's truth. Right? Fact, truth. A lot of times, Christians aren't okay with facts. I'm okay with facts because I understand that they don't rule me. We, we met Chris, uh, what's his last name, from New Zealand up in Cleveland? Gore? Chris Gore. Yes, Chris Gore. He's friends with doctors. A lot of times we're afraid to hear words like, oh, don't say you have cancer. Why? It's right here. It's a fact. But my truth of healing trumps that sucker anytime. Just because you see it on paper doesn't mean you're coming into agreement with it. Because I've got another book that's on paper that says, by his stripes you're healed. That's the spirit. Right? Okay, this is what I'm going to shut up with. We're just going to finish Ephesians chapter 4 because there's some good stuff in there. (coughs) All right. (coughs) Till we all come to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children 
tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effect of working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, I want to give you a concept, and it's going to be hard to follow without an illustration. It just said that the fivefold ministry causes us to grow up into the head. Do you know what that means? That means that Jesus Christ as our head has already defeated everything that would ever cause us problems in the kingdom. Our head has victory. But now there is a dispensation, an era, the kingdom, where the body is responsible to make what's true of the head true of the body. Following me. So that means you're responsible now to step into vicarious victory. If we don't seize the opportunity, we will continue to lose the fight. What's that mean? Why do you think negativity and depression comes knocking on your door? It's not for you to submit to. It's for you to dominate and to put in its rightful place. Why do you think thoughts of suicide and worthlessness come knocking on your door? You don't even have to drive to the game. The game comes to you and you've already won. Every time that you have something that opposes Christ, that opposes his victory, it's your responsibility to put it under your feet and take a step up. Negativity, selfishness, slander, sickness, pain, death, the grave. It's our responsibility to make what's true of our head true of the body. By taking the authority and the vicarious victory that he's already given us and stepping into what he's already paid for. That's why in the tomb there was a a folded up head garment and the body wrap was still laying because the head's been revealed and the world is crying out for the revealing of the sons of God.